You're listening to 95.7 FM, KDRT-LP, Davis, California. Music means it's time for the Davis Garden Show. This is Don Shore. And this is Lois Richter here in a bright, beautiful, sunny winter day. So it's kind of cool out there, but hey, I see sunshine, Don. What are we going to do this week? Well, first of all, I feel compelled to continue to correct you until December 21st because it is actually fall. <laughs> Don, it's winter. It's not winter. It's fall. There's still color on the trees. My ginkgo has got glorious color on it this year. By the way, the fall color seems to be quite spectacular in our area this year, partly because I think, one, we've had some very cold mornings. Maybe that's why Lois is feeling like it's winter. And partly because it's been bright and sunny during the daytime, enhancing the hues of the fall color on the Chinese pistache, ginkgo biloba, and other trees in our area that give such wonderful autumn colors. Temperature right now, as Lois and I are recording this program on November, 23rd for broadcast on November 24th, Thanksgiving Day 2022. Temperature right now is 57 degrees, going up to a high of 68. Uh, the low temperature tonight that will be 38. Thanksgiving Day is going to be 65 degrees. The low temperature Thanksgiving evening will or Thanksgiving night, Friday morning will be 38 degrees. Not talking about frost anymore for the next few days. We've had frost on my farm now for 11 days straight. 11 mornings I've been able to go out and see not just visible, but significant amounts of frost. As we've talked about before, microclimates are making a big difference right now. I have coleus plants on my front porch that look just fine. Coleus is killed at 31.5 degrees. I mean, it just blackens. Up on the front porch, it looks great. Down by the driveway, mere 15 or 20 feet further out on the same exposure, they're showing some injury. Uh, plants that are out in the open, open to the sky. Had I, If I had coleus out there, I expect it would probably be blackened and dead, much as my tomatoes, peppers, my hibiscus, that roselle hibiscus I've been growing for tea. Oh, it's dead now. <laughs> Definitely, it's gone. And it looked great three weeks ago. Uh, so we've had enough frost out here uh, to do damage to the things we expect to have damage to. But night temperatures, weather station temperatures, again, low to mid 30s, not cold enough for any real concern. And for the next few nights, it's actually going to be warmer. We've got a weak storm passing through the north part of the valley. We're going to have some clouds. We're going to be uh, 63 degrees on Saturday and mostly sunny, mostly clear Saturday night and 39 degrees. Sunday, 60 degrees, mostly sunny. A uh, slight chance of showers coming in late Sunday night. This is a weak storm, which is mostly going to go north of us, get some snow, perhaps slight amount of snow up in the foothills and the mountains. It'll be partly cloudy Sunday night and only 40 degrees. Chance of showers Monday. Uh, Monday night, 35 degrees as that storm clears out of here. And another weak storm was progressing our way. I keep noticing that the Weather Service is vacillating a bit on this one. To put it in their phrases... Differences in model trajectory and speed of the next short wave lead to uncertainties with the timing of precipitation. 
And there's not a lot of moisture in that storm. So Tuesday looks dry under the shortwave ridging. Another system is progressing into the forecast area us Wednesday into Thursday. Model differences, some uncertainties with the timing of the precipitation. Not a lot of water in that one either, but we should have near normal high temperatures Sunday and then dropping below normal through the middle of next week as this week's storm passes through. KDRT is community radio. We rely on contributions from listeners like you to fund our operating costs. And if you like the Davis Garden Show or all the other great programming here at KDRT, head on over to kdrt.org, kdrt.org, and click not just on the support button. You go there right now to kdrt.org. You'll see a big old thing that says, click here to donate. Growing the Grassroots Trail, because we're celebrating 18 years of KDRT and Davis Media Access. And uh, there's a link right there. First thing you see, which gives you all kinds of options for how to contribute any amount you wish. And we certainly appreciate it. We'll talk more about that during our big fundraising push next week. So I wanted to um, just, when people listen to this show, and they say, okay, now Lois and Donna are recording it the day before, and it's X degrees right now. Well, understand that sometimes we record at 9 in the morning, and sometimes <laughs> we record at 11. So I think we should just stop saying what the temperature is currently when we're recording. Just say what the high today is and the high tomorrow, because it's very misleading, because you said 54, and last time you said 32, and it wasn't that much difference during the day. I'll leave it to the listeners to decide whether or not we should talk about the current <laughs> weather when it's a day old anyway by the time they hear yeah, it. Temperatures okay. in the 50s. How's that? Temperatures in the 50s. Yeah, basic, yeah. basic point is it's sunny and beautiful out here. There's not enough it rain. Is. We need more rain. And here's a funny note. We've had 170 chilling hours. It's not even December. We've had 170 chilling hours. We've had twice as many chilling hours. We're talking about the chilling hours for fruit trees. It's been mm -hmm. clear cold night after night after night the the magic numbers that they use to track the chilling hours for whether the deciduous fruit species go into and then come out of dormancy properly in order to bloom and set fruit are the old model is 32 to 45 degrees we've now had again i haven't looked it up today but last time i looked it was 160 and we're gaining 10 or 12 a day right now with this kind of weather we're having uh, so we are double last year's chilling hours way above average at the rate we're going most of the fruit varieties that we sell and grow here would have sufficient chilling this year by mid to late december I don't anticipate that'll continue exactly that way, but let's just put it this way. This is not a year in which we're going to have to worry about low chilling hours as things are going. These clear, still nights are giving the fruit trees what they need. They're going into dormancy properly. And uh, I, someone asked me when we were talking about chilling hours, what if they get their chilling hours early and then we get warm? Well, yeah, they could break and grow and bloom earlier than is optimal in general in our area. That's not a huge concern. But if you're living in an area where you get late season frost, we had one in late February and another one in early March of this year, 2022, much later than usual to have a frost of that magnitude, trees were blooming. It injured them. It injured the blossoms. The almond crop was adversely affected in many parts of California because of the late frost, as were certain other fruit species. So it's not usually an issue for us. Uh, but in there are places where if you planted a low chill variety and you got the chilling met and then you had a spike of high temperatures that was anomalously warm, um, yeah, it could cause the tree to break dormancy and try to flower at a time when it would be injured by, by normal season cold. Not a huge issue for us here. I don't hesitate at all to sell low chill peaches here, for example. Red Baron, we mentioned last week, an outstanding peach that only needs 250 or 300 chilling hours, and we get you know 800 plus. 
it's practically had its chilling hours met already, but I don't anticipate any particular problem from that. So it's just that we're way ahead this year on chilling hours, partly because we've had so much early cold weather. And the chilling hours are the, to help the plant grow well, but the trigger to actually start spring is temperature. Is that correct? Increasing temperature, we presume, on, on most of the deciduous species. Yeah. yeah. Okay. And it doesn't affect right. everything, obviously. It doesn't affect, you know, citrus or things like that. We're mo mo mainly talking about stone fruits when we talk about chilling hours, which is to say peaches, plums, nectarines, apricots, apriums, that sort of thing. Apples and pears, of course, palm fruits also with the chilling hours are a factor, although it's known that many apple varieties will fruit outside of their supposed chilling hour range. It seems mm -hmm. to be the nature of how the chilling occurs, not the exact numbers. Chilling hours are kind of a proxy for what's happening. It doesn't tell you exactly what's going on. The new chilling portions model, which you can read about at the UC Davis website, fruitsandnuts.ucdavis.edu, gives a great deal of information about the different areas of research. And the good news is that they overlap sufficiently. We can still use chilling hours to tell us roughly what's needed. Chilling portions are more important. That's what's actually going on in the plant. And it's really an issue for listeners in Southern California and places where you're on the edge of having the right kind of chilling and you're likely to encounter spikes of high temperature like LA is supposed to get into the 80s this week. You know, that kind of thing happens pretty commonly down there. Our Christmas dinner was routinely in San Diego, a buffet out on the patio because it was sunny and the temperatures were in the 60s, maybe close to 70. That's not uncommon in Southern California. So you might have varieties that would break dormancy that could be problematic. Uh, but it's it's not an absolute thing. If we have a year where a variety like Red Haven peach is listed at close to 900 chilling hours and we get 800, hey, guess what? It's going to flower and fruit adequately, especially for a home gardener. You know, we have a few questions in here. Why don't I yep. just jump right in? Yeah. Okay. This person writes, uh, we're planting under some mature African sumacs, lots of shade, evergreen trees. Any consideration in growing underneath this species? Seems like not much grows there right now. Yeah, some people wonder if African sumacs uh, put something in the soil, whether it's an allelopathic reaction, as we have observed under, say, walnut trees. Others think that it's simply the aggressive roots of sumacs, and uh, having worked in yards that had them, I think it's the latter. They have very aggressive network of roots, and if you ever try to plant directly under an established African sumac, you're going to cut through a lot of those roots to dig your planting hole. You're going to put your new plant in and they'll immediately regrow into the nice loose soil that you filled in around mm -hmm. your new plant with. So the key thing for planting under an aggressive rooted tree is that the plant needs to be shade tolerant and it needs to be able to hold its own. It needs to be able to either retain moisture somehow or get an extensive network of roots of its own or something or run across the ground and root freely into loose debris that's on the surface. Any of those adaptive strategies will work with a tree that has an aggressive root system, a strong propensity for suckering as African sumac does. Um, I would not suggest going out and buying, say, a flat of ground cover rooted cuttings, the old fashioned flats where it's just individual little tiny plants. Those poor little things will probably never be able to get purchased, never be able to get a hold of a, uh, a piece of ground of their own before the sumac roots get in and just squeeze them out. You're better off starting with larger plants and choosing things that have their own 
that, that are from that kind of environment, I guess would be the way to put it. So things from the Barberry family, such as Mahonias. Mahonias are now classed as actually the genus Berberis, but we in the nursery trade still use Mahonia because they're really different from the Barberries most people had planted. They have root systems that are woody and reasonably aggressive and can hold their own in competition with a tree. That goes for Nandina as well. You know, it certainly can hold up on its own. Um, asparagus fern. Now, I'm not talking about the one that reseeds all over creation. I'm not talking about asparagus springer eye, which I really don't think people should plant. That can become quite a nuisance in your yard. Thinking about the more closely related asparagus myri, as an example, that's the so-called foxtail asparagus. Very root competitive, big fleshy roots of its own, water holding organs down there that look like bulbs that they're literally just water storage organs uh, so it can hold its own in terms of retaining moisture it can get its roots out aggressively i've had a asparagus myri foxtail asparagus directly under my sycamore tree now for near on 40 years and it's gone through everything and it does just fine it can take drought it can take watering you name it so you look for plants that are relatively tough rooted on their own and those are a couple of examples others that seem to work because they come from that kind of a niche are, for example, the native alum root, the uh, heuchera, heuchera, uh, that would be maxima, I guess. The uh, There's a couple other common names, and there's some hybrids of those that have come on the market. They've been sort of overshadowed by all those fancy leafed heucheras that you see in every garden center, and you certainly can try those. But these old-fashioned ones that are derived from the native species of the Southwest are actually quite adaptable to that kind of environment. And I also mentioned things that run across the ground and root in. Now, that's if you have a higher water status, because those are plants that will tend to be fairly shallow rooted, which you've, you've seen with ornamental strawberry, not that I recommend it, but plants like that, where they run over the surface and root, run, root, run, root. Look for ones that aren't going to become a major nuisance in your yard, like the ornamental strawberry. Uh, but there are, don't do that one, no. But it's an example of one. Uh, various campanulas will, will will hold their own in that situation. Um, I can probably think of some other ground covers of that type. Vinca minor, just regular old dwarf periwinkle can certainly hold its own. Uh, just make sure it's something where, here's the other factor, the constant leaf litter from the sumacs will not be something you feel the need to try and clean out. Because if you've got constant leaf litter going down onto ground covers, it doesn't rake out easily. It doesn't blow out easily. Choose something with a somewhat open habit, like the Vinca Minor, where the leaves can just filter down in and convert to mulch and just become part of the soil, rather than something really big, glossy leaf where the leaves are going to pile up on there and bother you. What about the uh, Ribes viperifolium? Would that yeah. work? Yeah, we mention that all the time on this show because it's a California native that grows in the shade and can take both drought and watering. So that that checks a whole lot of boxes right there in terms of, you know, unlike a lot but of for, natives. For some watered, roots. It can tolerate that. Yeah. And it's a woody plant that can grow out over the surface and root in as it needs to, but doesn't have to have a whole lot of rooting zone. Uh, so it's something that would work. And there's other woody plants like that. And it depends on where under the tree you're going to plant right up close to the tree is going to be very, very challenging because there's just this extraordinary network of roots there. But for Further out on the edge, where you're getting close to a, maybe brighter light conditions, you have more choices. And you could even do things like some of our native plants like Baccarus. You know, the, it doesn't want to be in the shade, but on the edge of the sumac, it probably would be fine. That's the, the ground cover forms of coyote bush. There's lots of options as you get to the outer perimeter of the, the, the drip line of the tree. Closer in, that'll be a tough one. When I had to deal with a very dense shade of a tree and I was trying to look for a grassy looking ground cover, 
At that time, I chose Mondo grass, which worked very well. It grew very slowly, but it held its own and it increased from year to year. And I could dig up the clumps and divide them and spread them around and just chisel a little spot and plant a new one. And it would root in very quickly. Related to Mondo grass are the turf lilies, Liriope or Liriope, however you prefer to pronounce it. Those are bigger and they can also hold their own in that situation. So you do look for ground covers like that. And there are some of the sedges. If you're looking for a grass-like look, walk through the Arboretum, UC Davis Arboretum, if you're listening to us in this area and go down to the uh, the redwood grove uh, down at the far well not the far east end but towards the east end and you'll see a particular ground cover sedge that's growing in there uh the berkeley sedge and there's there's um, a couple other sedges that are perfectly suitable as well they can tolerate shade give a sort of a meadowy look not a clipped lawn look but they're tolerant of both root competition some drought although they prefer water they can tolerate drought and they can take the shade from the tree so these sumacs that have uh, a network of roots, are their roots fairly shallow? In, in other words, what I'm thinking is, if I could dig a hole, cut out a few of those roots, and then take a, a oh, I don't know, a coffee can, open at both ends, and slip it down in there, like a barrier? and plant the plant in there, hmm. that would keep the roots from the side. But are they shallow-rooted? or? Uh, well, generally, tree roots are shallow-rooted. Most people sort of have this image in their head that tree roots are more like, you know, are some are mirror image of the top. They're not. Tree roots are generally in the top foot to foot and a half of soil and go well past the canopy. And the sumac isn't actually a tree to begin with. I have to say this. It's one of these things that we used to sell as trees. Thank goodness I didn't sell that many of them, but nurseries used to sell as trees, which are really more of a suckering shrub. If you plant an African sumac, Rus lancia, on your property and do nothing, pretty soon you'll have a thicket of Rus lancia. That goes, by the way, for many other members of the genus Rus, including poison oak, um, uh, the roost, uh, the staghorn sumac, which has beautiful fall color, but which I made the mistake of planting on my property years ago and finally got rid of it when we had a bulldozer on site. <laughs> it's a challenging one. These are plants with a woody spreading network of roots that is very challenging to get rid of and very challenging to break through. And the African sumac is in that category. It was widely planted in Davis in the seventies and eighties. There's still some nice plantings around. The nicest looking ones are ones where they've been in a lawn or a setting like a lawn. It's really a hassle in a lawn from the standpoint of lawn management. It looks very pretty this way. Pruned up to emphasize the beautiful mahogany red bark on the trunk and the graceful sort of weeping look of the tree and the shiny leaves of the tree. And then you just deal with a million suckers all the time. Uh, so it's not a tree that I recommend at all, but if you happen to have one you're planting underneath it, look for these things that can hold their own with tough root systems or that run across the ground and can just root in on their own. Hope that helps. All right. All right. Let's move on. Uh, Merrill writes, uh, thank you so much for the show. I tell every gardener I meet about you. You and Lois are fixtures in our household in Fairfax, California, and that's over by Marin. Um, I have a lot of seed packets, poppies, maribolus, lychnis, lavender, and other herbs, etc., that tell me to plant indoors in late winter or outdoors in fall or in spring after the last chance of frost. Since I want to make sure they fill in holes in my established beds, I'd rather plant them in pots and transplant them into the bigger beds, mixed beds when they're bigger. Yeah. It doesn't frost in my greenhouse. It rarely frosts at all on the property and usually not past mid-February. Now, here come the questions. Yep. What's the difference between planting these seeds in a greenhouse now versus outdoors later? Why do we avoid planting seeds indoors in December and January? Does it have to do with the light or something? Okay, we'll start with that. Um, 
We are doing a lot of things from seed at our nursery, and I've always done a lot myself. Uh, first of all, the one thing I have to say repeatedly as people are looking at the seed packets that I sell from the company that we get them from, Botanical Interests, ignore the information on the seed packet. It's written for a national market, and California is different in so many ways. Mm -hmm. We are very different, and in particular... We don't wait till X number of days before or after the last frost, because the kind of frost we have here isn't what they're talking about. <laughs> so it is important that you plant things that are that are appropriate to the season. I wouldn't have you planting, let's say, pansies from seed in March or April, uh, because those prefer the cool season. So we plant those going into the cool season. Starting things in an outdoor greenhouse in the winter, the nights in the greenhouse are going to be very cold. And that will slow them down considerably. We're doing a lot of things that we started from seed over the last, well, we do it year round, but we did a lot of them over the last four to six weeks to get them off to a good start, move them up to four inch pots, hold them in the greenhouse where it's warm enough during the day for the young plants to make more growth. But the nights are still cold, which slows them down a bit. We don't have a heated greenhouse. Most of my customers who have greenhouses don't have heated greenhouses either. Commercial growers do. We don't have heat in our greenhouse yet. We're getting there. Um, so they slow way down. The reason for doing them indoors is things will germinate and grow more quickly. But indoor conditions are way too low light. So if you're growing things indoors, growing things from seed, and you get serious about it, you'll end up having an indoor germination station. And that's going to involve grow lights that are very close to the plant. It's going to be in a window someplace. And as soon as those plants come up, what is the mantra that we go through in the spring with your tomato seedlings? Outdoors in the day, indoors at night. Right. And the reason for that is to put them out where the light is much brighter, six, seven, eight times the brightness outside, even on a sheltered patio. And where there's air movement, air movement helps the plant release naturally occurring hormones within it that thicken the, the stem, make it a sturdier, stockier seedling. But indoors at night, so you don't get that effect of the cold temperatures slowing the metabolism, slowing the plant's growth rate down. So you're trying to make, if you try to do them indoors all the way up until the outdoor planting time, they'll be really stretchy and thin and weak. And you'll go through this process of significant transplant shock when you put them out in full sun, cold soil, whatever the conditions are at the time you're planting them. It's a big transition. So ideally, is to grow them where it sprout them where it's warm grow them where it's warm but there's natural light and air movement and then protect them at night from excessive cold and unfortunately your greenhouse does not have um, enough night night heat night heating to take care of that now our solution to that so we're going to run a electric line down to right near our greenhouses that you can see right there at the, the redwood barn when you come in right towards the back of the nursery and we're going to have uh, warm pads heating pads on a couple of benches in each greenhouse. So those are set with a preset thermostat. It's at 70 degrees. Typically it's on the bench right underneath the pot. So no matter how cold the air temperature gets in the greenhouse, if it's freezing outside, 30 degrees outside, the greenhouse will drop to 34, 35, 36 degrees, the air temperature in the greenhouse enough frost protection that we don't worry about something being injured. Um, that's why we move some things into the greenhouse as we get into the colder weather, even though it's still in the 30s. But the plants that we really care about, their pots will be sitting on a pad that is at 70 degrees. And that goes on around the clock at a very low amount of electrical input. So it protects the roots and makes a little zone of warmer air right around the plant. And we have found that things like tomatoes, even peppers, are fine with that as long as they have bottom heat even though the air temperature is getting into the 30s, the root temperature and the, presumably the temperature right around the little plant itself is higher. So soil temperature has a different meaning in this situation than normal. Yeah, 
Yeah. And it makes a big difference as to how fast things grow. The green cold, uh, cold effect on plants, uh, it changes the metabolism. It changes what they're doing with the byproducts of photosynthesis. Uh, there's a different mix of chemicals in the leaf and they kind of each, each successive frost, each successive cold night can injure tropical plants, can slow down, do some injury to subtropical plants, um, changes what's going on with plants that are not necessarily tropical or subtropical, but cold injury is both cumulative and reversible. Okay, that's an important principle. Even if you've left a plant out one night that shouldn't be outside and it's gotten injured, you see some leaf damage or something like that. If you leave it out night after night after night, it's going to get worse. If you bring it in, not only will the injury stop, the plant will recover from it. So we we feel that the higher temperature of the greenhouse during each day than the air temperature outside the greenhouse gives a net benefit to the plant, even though we are colder at night than is optimal. I hope that sentence scanned. I can see my English teacher in high school taking a big red marker to that sentence. But I think the key principle is, again, cold damage is cumulative and reversible. That'll be one of our Redwood Barn aphorisms that we'll add to the list of many. Someday we'll do a whole show of Redwood Barn aphorisms. And one of them will be <laughs> cold injury is cumulative, but reversible. And outside in the day, inside at night. Again. Yeah. So a question for you, Don. Someday, someday, I I'm gonna that... get, someday I'm going to get a dolly where I can just put these things on the flat, roll them out during the day, roll them back in so I don't have to carry them one at a time. You don't have that? No. No, I'm getting there. Why not? Just put <laughs> wheels. Just put wheels on your table. The alternative is to get more light indoors, which is what I did last year. You may remember last year we I, I talked about the point where I had 42 flats of peppers in my son's old bedroom uh, because we had gotten them going. We start our peppers. We're actually going to be starting peppers, the really super hots and the ones that really take a long time, late December, early January. We're going to mm. start them upstairs in our office where we have some warm pads set up. They have lights right over them. They come up very quickly. As soon as we possibly can, we'll shift those to the next type of soil, the next pot, and put them outside. But we don't want them outside if the night temperature is outside in the greenhouse. But even on the warm bench, we'll be a little bit concerned about that. One simple option is more light indoors. You get some grow lights. People who are really serious about this tend to go online and find grow light structures that they can put over their seedlings to keep them indoors. There's days where it wouldn't be suitable to put them out. It's too windy, too cold, too rainy. There's a lot of you listening in places where you're just laughing at the idea of putting plants outside anytime between, I don't know, Halloween and Easter. <laughs> so it's not necessarily an option. Bear in mind that the indoor extra lighting works, but it still doesn't resolve the lack of movement issue you can solve oh but you have them on a rolling table you just go and shake that little thing yeah just actually that table i know that sounds funny but actually yes vibrating the plants does work or you know i've had people who are like serious about certain crops that we don't usually mention here get little tiny fans uh just to turn them on every now and then to get that air movement and the advantage of a little fan the reason i mentioned this is that some of them are doing these plants from seed and they're having problems with damping off with the seeds just rotting as soon as they come up. One of the very simplest ways to avoid damping off is either direct exposure to sunlight or air movement and a small fan, not something that's going to desiccate the whole thing, but the kind of thing you might use in a computer, you know, that kind of little fan <laughs> just pointed at the tray will actually be enough air movement to help avoid fungus organisms attacking and so on and help strengthen those seedlings. This is if you can't move them outside. I always prefer to let nature give the plant what it needs, but we're in a climate where that's possible. Not everybody listening can do that. And that was a long detour away from those questions about <laughs> seed packets. So the ones you mentioned, so <laughs> backing up, the ones you mentioned, poppies, lychnis, lavender, uh, poppies you generally start in the fall 
to plant out in the fall or winter here for bloom in the late winter and spring. So that, and they're challenging, by the way. We've just gone through starting a whole bunch of poppies, different types from seed. The transplant has been, we had 100% failure on some of them where we tried to move mm -hmm. them into new pots. The roots are very, very fragile. Others work fine. Don't be upset if poppies are a challenge for you to do this way. I've done them and the most successful method I have used for poppies that I start early is to do them in peat pots, the kind of pots that are formed out of peat moss, because then I can transplant and I just put a little pinch of seeds in there. And I don't thin the seedlings because they'll take care of that themselves. And once I see roots on the bottom, I take that whole unit that's made of peat moss and I plant it right in the ground. I water carefully. That works really well. Trying to pre-start them the way we are doing in our production system with a bunch of seeds in a production tray, which we then carefully transplant out into smaller pots. 95, 99% of the things we grow work fine that way. Poppies have been a major challenge for us. We want to sell California poppy seedlings, but they're really a struggle to get into a saleable size for the public. One of the reasons you don't see them in nurseries very often. I also mentioned so, Latin. Go ahead. So so what about um, making your own little little pots out of something that is eventually going to disintegrate, like, like thin paper? And, uh, and then you could move, you could put the whole little thing into a big, slightly bigger pot mm -hmm. and it would just disintegrate. Yeah. And there are things that'll do that. People have used cardboard egg cartons, uh, type anything yeah. that'll disintegrate as long as it doesn't block the roots from developing. That's the key thing. And a lot of those products actually have something impregnated into them to prevent them from breaking down. So mm -hmm. buying peat pots or quar blocks or whatever you prefer to use is probably your best bet because those are designed for this purpose. Other and things. And then do you trim off, do you snip off the bottom? I tug the bottom as they go in the ground. I just break it off. Yes, I don't snip it off, but I just mm -hmm. pinch and pull in that way. And I'm trying to be very careful with things like the poppies not to injure the roots. Most other plants, by the way, are nowhere near this problem. I just happen to see poppies mm -hmm. the first thing on her list. So hope that answered your question. So, so you have uh, talked about two things today that make me curious. You talked about having your coleus underneath excuse me, underneath an overhang. Yes. And so they survived up there, but not out, out in the cloud. And then you talked about having a greenhouse. And I'm assuming the greenhouse, because I've seen it, is clear above it, right? It's a, it's a plastic, clear panels. Yeah, yeah this okay. is a plastic greenhouse. So is, is that clearness of the panel, uh, does, does that, okay, does that make a difference when something gets frost or doesn't? Uh, what, I know you say if it's a clear sky, if it's open to the sky, what about no, anything, that? anything that blocks the loss of heat to the sky will help with frost protection. So that can be as simple as an overhang on the building. We put a little overhang over near the building on our, our, our nursery, one to keep rain off of certain things and also to provide a little extra frost protection. It's just blocking the loss of heat to the sky and keeping it within the greenhouse. So the greenhouse effect was the origin of the climate change theory, and it works. <laughs> greenhouse effect is it comes in, radiation comes in one way, it changes, and it, it, it won't go out if there's something blocking the heat. Uh, you're trapping the heat in there. What they're made out of makes a big difference. Commercial greenhouses, I mean, I'm looking at putting a greenhouse on my property, and the coverings for commercial quality greenhouses are, are just like, just as with windows, the technology has gotten so advanced that there are products out there that commercial growers use. They're expensive, but they use them because they're even more efficient at keeping heat into the, in the greenhouse. They're usually double pane and uh, they're made out of various plastic materials. Glass is no longer used for a lot of reasons and it wasn't as efficient as some of these, these newer materials anyway. Although glass greenhouses are quite elegant and lovely, they are not as efficient as some of these newer polycarbonate materials that are used. So 
most home gardeners are going to use the same things we have at our garden center. If you happen to walk into Redwood Barn, look in the back corner. I have three of these in my backyard at home. Pop-up, large pop-up greenhouses you can buy online, a few hundred dollars, depending on the brand and quality. They're fairly thin plastic. They're not going to retain as much heat as these these uh, double-pane polycarbonate type materials by any stretch. But even those don't stay that warm. I'm reminded of a customer who moved here from the Bay Area and brought his orchid collection, quite an orchid collection. He had a greenhouse there and he was in a fairly sheltered part of the Bay Area. And then he got very concerned because he had a thermometer out in his greenhouse and it was November and the temperature in the greenhouse was dropping into the 50s. He was afraid his orchids wouldn't take that. And I said, you're absolutely correct. The kind of greenhouse you can buy is not going to provide anywhere near enough passive heating for a tropical orchid. No way. You would have to put a little heater out there and run it all night. You would have to generate heat and you'd be losing a lot of it because greenhouses aren't that efficient in terms of retaining heat. He was quite, quite concerned. And I said, yeah, in the winter, once you get cold, those green, those orchids need to be house plants. I'm really sorry to say <laughs> this. They'll be great there in the spring as you and you can shade it lightly in the summer. It'll be a lovely place to go in the summer and it'll go well into the fall. But as we get into November, night temperatures in there will be too low for cattleyas and lalias and pretty much all the, the popular home garden orchids. The only exceptions would be cymbidiums and ones that are actually hardier. So people have a lot of expectations for what a greenhouse is going to do. But most greenhouse operations, I can tell you, I buy from people who grow things in greenhouses, their big expense is heating the greenhouses. They have to generate heat to heat the greenhouses. And uh, they have to keep them 70, 80 degrees for some of the things they're growing. So they're always looking for more efficient ways to do that. Yes, of course, the greenhouse catches and traps heat. And that's a wonderful aspect of it. In fact, heat management of a greenhouse is the other. The flip side of it is managing the excess heat in the summertime. But uh, they don't trap enough to grow a tropical plant in through the winter. So it can give adequate frost protection, but not enough heat for something that really needs to never go below 55 degrees. And that frost protection, is that something where you might put um, a piece of fabric over the top of the the plastic of the clear plastic or does we'll make, No, that's does not it, necessary. You, no. you might, no, you should just, uh, uh, there would be no point in that particularly. Um, you okay. might find that you need to get something in there to generate heat if you're counting on it protecting plants that can't go below the 40s. This is an important yeah. thing. I mean, I've, I've had jade plants. Jade plants are a really good example. They're actually hardy enough for us to grow here near the house, but can be severely injured five to 10 feet away out in the open. I have I had a giant one at our nursery for years that I bought from a customer. The one branch stuck out from under the overhang of the building. The rest of it was under the overhang. We got down to 29 degrees one night. That whole branch was killed. The rest of the plant looked fine. I mean, <laughs> the same plant within a two-foot zone, but the rest of the plant was fine. But out in the open, that part got killed back. We cut it off and we just protected it and we actually turned that into a bunch of cuttings. But that tells you that out in the open, jade plants can be injured. And I've had a case where I, I have a bunch of jade plants all the time, four-inch and six-inch pots to take into the nursery and sell. And I always have a stock of them. And I had one year where most of them were in the greenhouse and some of them were on a, on shelves right outside that same greenhouse, you know, attached shelves that were attached to the wall of the greenhouse. They were so badly damaged, they were unsaleable for basically a year. And the ones inside the greenhouse, two feet away, but with a wall of greenhouse between them, were fine. And so it just provided a two to four degree difference in frost protection. And that's really what most of the things we talk about provide when you're covering a young citrus, when you're generating heat with Christmas lights, when you're doing those things, it's a couple of degrees protection, but it's enough protection to reduce or eliminate frost injury. 
She had another, she had, glad, she had another question. Let's, let's move on. Aren't we glad we live in Davis where a few little Christmas tree lights can make the difference? If you can find them, okay. you, need the old, you, know, you need the old fashioned kind folks, not the twinkly lights. So if you can't yep. find those and you're looking and we're having a cold snap and you're looking for a way to protect that Guatemalan avocado, I told you you shouldn't plant. Go out and get a clamp on shop light fixture and a grounded extension cord and plug it into an outside plug and put a 40 watt light bulb in it and clamp it to the base of the tree and let it run through the night. That will provide enough protection, especially on a still night to keep that plant protected. It's even better if you have something over the plant to trap that heat you're generating, but a single bulb on a, on a clamp on shop light should take care of it. All right. We have a couple more questions. This again is from Merrill. My next question is about gophers. They seem to be in overdrive this year, and they've even killed some established shrubs that were previously undisturbed for years. We used to see gopher snakes on our property, but haven't for a while. Between the drought and the gophers, it was a very depressing year in our yard. Do you have any recommendations for gopher-safe plants or experiencing planting with pre-made gopher baskets? I struggle making them out of my own hardware cloth. Any advice would be a big help. Oh, do I have experience with gophers? What's a pre-made gopher basket? Uh, They're basically made out of a mesh that looks like the hardware cloth. It looks like a finer grade chicken wire, poultry wire, but it's a heavier duty because gophers can true through (laughs) regular poultry wire without much difficulty. Uh, They make them, I sell them, and they're very handy. They come in different sizes that are basically the size of a one gallon or five gallon or 15 gallon plant. Gophers are my number one nemesis on my farm. Uh, Ground squirrels and gophers inhabit this property and probably have for centuries. Bear in mind, they're native here. Gophers are a native organism. It's, you know, we moved onto their property, not the other way around. (laughs) And I lived here for 20 years with gophers out in the orchard. And I had a vegetable garden, a huge vegetable garden. And uh, they're maybe feeding on roots of my fruit trees or something, but I never had any problem with them. And then one year, they found my vegetable garden. And that was a year that I had done more to organize my vegetable garden than ever before. There were paths, landscape fabric, all new beds, all the beds had drip line running into them with emitters every mm, two, two, mm-hmm. two gallon an hour emitters every foot. And I planted it and I washed with dismay as 30 pepper plants were taken out in 30 days. And that was 100% of my pepper plants. Well, I'd go out each day, another one gone, another one gone. They followed the drip line in mm-hmm. and they, it was like a highway marker for them. And from that point on, they were a huge problem in my vegetable garden. And there were certain plants like peppers. I just gave up on trying to plant them out there. I just started doing them in containers. Um, first of all, gopher baskets work very well and they're they're easy to work with. They're a little expensive compared to making your own, but they're safer because they're already done. The problem with that hardware cloth, and I, I would sell it, but uh, you can buy it at hardware stores with no problem. When you cut it, you've got a whole bunch of little sharp ends there and it's going <laughs> to scratch you and someone's going to get injured. You definitely should not have kids working on this or anyone unsupervised because it kind of flips around and, and snags at you and someone's going to, there's going to be blood. <laughs> it's simple. I've used it. I've done it. You may, you will find these, these ones you can buy already to go are much easier to work with. And so I, you know, I suggest, especially if this is a family project that you maybe spend the extra money on them and they do last just mark where they are because you won't be able to see them after they're buried in the ground. And, you know, you want to mark the spot so you don't happen to decide to rototill that year and hit them. That would be unpleasant. Uh, they do work very well. What I found, I gave up, by the way, on that vegetable garden, that spot. I just gave up on it as a vegetable garden and started planting. I had observed that they never bothered my lavender plants, which are almost always planted on the edge of or near my vegetable garden. So I thought, okay, evidently they don't like lavender plants. 
So I just started planting all those beds with lavender plants. At some point, I had about 15 varieties and about 40 different types of 40 different lavender plants. It made a spectacular display. Either they feed on the roots and it doesn't bother them, or more likely, they actually don't feed on the roots. And then I read somewhere that they really don't like members of the mint family, which includes lavender plants. So I started planting rosemary and salvias and other members of the mint family. And you're what? They don't bother them. They leave them alone completely. So I know this is frustrating when you want to grow vegetables and certain flowers, but it did make an incredible bed of lavender that I, 15 plus years later, actually 17 years later, I looked back at my old notes when I first planted those. I'm ready to finally take some of them out because they've died out. There's others in there that are still looking great. And bear in mind, lavender is usually considered fairly short-lived plant. I did them on the same drip lines, but I watered way less often. And at this point, I water them once a month and it's turned into a lovely, very low water part of my landscape. So I will go ahead and say my experience, and it was presented to me and I have tested this at least within the range of, uh, of uh, no double blind studies or anything, but observation. They don't like members of the mint family and they particularly don't like lavenders, salvias, and rosemary. So if you like those things, go ahead and plant some of those. Tucrium would probably also be good. And I also did Nepeta in that same bed, Nepeta being the ground cover cat mint. So presumably catnip would probably be undisturbed as well. So basically an herb garden where gophers are, because many members of the mint family are our classic culinary herbs, an herb garden should be safe. And are there any members of the mint family that we eat as vegetables? As vegetables, no, but again, a lot of them are culinary herbs. So that's a good good starting point. Also, I learned from someone that they don't particularly like pumpkin or melon plants. And this is mm. true also. I've had, I've my last year when I planted them out in the area where they had invaded most recently, I finally just filled it with pumpkins and I was growing them for to sale at my nursery. And I figured I'd go ahead and try it and see what happened. And they did not disturb the plants at all. And they were very active out there. They were surfacing all the time. Their mounds were there. They were eating weeds and things in the area. And likewise, melons, they did not damage the melon plants. However, this was an amusing thing that I found was that musk melons, which we call cantaloupes, musk melons on the ground, if they were sitting on the surface of the soil, a gopher would come up from below it and eat out the bottom half of the musk melon, which I would only learn when I went in to harvest it, then find that a good half of the melon was gone. Plants were undisturbed. <laughs> pumpkins were undisturbed. All other melons, interestingly, were undisturbed, but musk melons are apparently aromatic enough that they were drawn to those. So if you do musk melons, cantaloupes in particular, also Charentay, some of the others, I would suggest setting the melons as they once they form up on something. Straw would probably be fine. A piece of cardboard, anything to just make a barrier so those gophers can't get up and get at it. But in general, uh, everything in that family, pumpkins and melons, and I haven't tried cucumbers, so I can't absolutely speak to that one, but they grew fine. And there was lots of gopher activity out there and they basically left them alone. Also, when I did big blocks of corn, they would surface in the corn and they'd be in there maybe feeding on the roots. I don't know, but the plants were vigorous enough that they grew and yielded just fine as well. So you have to experiment a little bit. In general, I have found tomatoes if I plant them very deep, grow them up in a one gallon can, this is how desperate I am, okay, when I have to go for from, grow them up in a one gallon can to let's say two feet plus, wait till the right time to plant them, nice warm soil, first week of May, typically the plants are a couple feet high, ready to go, dig a hole very deep, foot to a foot and a half deep, 
drop them down into the bottom of that hole, burying that much of the stem. I've done this. And while I've had gophers take out young tomato plants that were smaller when they went in, I've generally not had a problem with them taking out these bigger plants that I'm dropping in my own theory below the gopher zone of activity. They will surface <laughs> around a plant, but they don't eat the roots. And that, that has worked for me as well. So just planting them deeper. Again, I can't verify this will always work, but it did work for me when I was having a major gopher problem. They're very, very frustrating when you get them. The one, the things that I never bothered putting back in the ground in that zone of my farm were the peppers and the eggplant because they would just demolish them. And once they get a taste for something, it seems like they come back over and over again. So hope that helps. Don't, gophers don't climb though. So if nope. you had something in a pot, they wouldn't climb up over the edge to get to it. If a gopher has just moved into your property, you should probably try to trap it because um, they're territorial. So that's good news. You're battling a single gopher. Yeah, at, whenever you're having a problem, it's the same one coming back. They're highly territorial and very fierce. They also don't like ground squirrels or other things that might inhabit their territory, and they definitely don't like gopher snakes. Um, but they, when you get one moving in, if you move quickly to trap that one with a Maccabee gopher trap or any of the other trap options, please don't use baits. Just go out and find the mechanical traps and go ahead and learn about how to use them and trap them. You can stop a problem from getting really severe. Once they've moved in, colonized, made their tunnels, made their runs through an area, you can kill that gopher, another one will move right in and another one will move right in. You'll never actually control the population because it'll just be territory that's open for a new gopher to explore. So if you haven't had a problem and one starts to move in from a nearby field or something, take action quickly. After you've got them established on your property, as I do, you're either going to plant things that they don't disturb or you're going to put in physical barriers such as the gopher cages. They do really work, though. People ask, you know, don't they eat the roots when they get out? Probably. We don't know exactly what they're doing down there, but the plants grow fine. So as far as we can tell, the gopher cages, the wire cages that you plant in work just fine. It seems that fruit trees, you know, they may be doing some injury. I know there's certain species like figs that they just love. So when you first plant a fig and if you don't do anything to protect and you've got a lot of gophers, pretty good chance they'll kill it. But if you once you get it established... Even if they're eating the roots constantly, they're vigorous trees with aggressive root systems, and I've never had a problem on established figs. So fruit trees and woody plants like that, once established, it doesn't seem to be as big an issue. It's the young, tender plant where you're, you, I've literally watched this happen, where the plant starts vibrating, and all of a sudden, boop, disappears into the ground, and there goes, you know, the next of your 30 peppers for that season. All right, what's next? Okay, the next one is a rose fragrance question. Oh, and I got to say, when I read this one, I'm, I'll tell you my answer, and then <laughs> Don will correct me. It says, what do you do to make roses more fragrant? I bought one rose variety, iceberg, and expected it to be fragrant, but it doesn't seem to be. And my answer is bottle of perfume because <laughs> i always thought that rose this variety of rose was fragrant and this variety wasn't and you know but don says that's not true well the it, flip it, it differs the flip answer and we had a fun conversation about this This guy happens to by the way uh manage one of the most significant historic rose gardens in davis if you're driving along 8th Street, it's a well-known rose garden that's been there for 60 years, I think it is. Mm -hmm. And he's now the current owner, and he happened to come in. Each each successive owner of this house has come in to chat with me because someone has told them that they should. And they own a rose garden that a lot of us have appreciated for many, many, many years. I won't say exactly where, but uh, yeah, it's a well-known rose garden in Davis. And he's uh, iceberg is one I sell a lot because it's extremely tough, adaptable. It's the most common white rose you'll see. It's the one that's planted in mass quantities. It's kind of funny. If you go to some 
websites that sell it, they describe it as fragrant. If you go to others, they describe it as not fragrant. They don't mention the fragrance. And it is one where the fragrance is at certain times of day only. Mm. And the parentage of modern roses will determine the fragrance of that variety. So the simple answer to how do you get a rose that's more fragrant is you buy a rose that's known to be fragrant. Some of them have names that are a good hint. Fragrant cloud. <laughs> Perfume delight. <laughs> others, uh, we can tell you, uh, Chrysler Imperial, always fragrant. They they differ because roses come from hybridization from many species and many hybrids and many, you know, they've been a lot of work on roses over the years. Fragrance hasn't always been something that people were breeding for or selecting for. There may be other characteristics. And I actually kind of surprised him a little bit with this. Modern roses grown for the cut flower trade are usually not real fragrant. Uh, if you, well, have, you wouldn't want them to be if you no. brought it into your living room and you're sitting at your dining room table. You yeah. wouldn't want to be overwhelmed. Yeah, the bride walking down the aisle carrying a bunch of Chrysler Imperial roses might faint. <laughs> so you get roses that are that fragrant. And so it isn't necessarily a desirable characteristic. Sometimes also, I did actually see studies on this, the process of selecting for certain characteristics like longer vase life. Uh, in other words, a rose that opens more slowly and gradually, or the particular flower shape or structure happened to inadvertently select for a rose that wasn't particularly fragrant. Not always. There's a widespread belief that modern roses are less fragrant than old garden roses or heirloom roses. And there are plenty of very fragrant modern roses and plenty of very fragrant old garden roses. I have both kinds. But one thing to know is that some roses are the fragrant volatile organic compounds are only in a certain part of the flower, whereas in others, they're in all parts of the flower. So a very fragrant rose like Chrysler Imperial, they're volatile organic compounds volatilizing off of, emitting from the petals, the sepals, and the anthers, and the, you know, the, the pollen-producing parts of the plant. And so anytime you walk up to Chrysler Imperial, a fragrant cloud, it's going to have considerable fragrance. Even with those milder weather conditions, a little more humidity, certain times of day, you're get, going to get even stronger fragrance. But some, and iceberg is an interesting example, the hybrid musk roses are only fragrant in the early evening. I have lots of them. It's one of my favorite groups of roses. They're moderately shade tolerant. They're informal plants. They're semi-double. They're very pretty, elegant plants, in my opinion. And you don't, you walk up to one in the middle of the day and smell the flower. You'll go, oh, just barely, barely any scent at all. And yet you'll be standing 10 feet away at 7.30, 8 o'clock in the early evening, uh, when it's relatively still and conditions are warm and a little humid, and all of a sudden, there will be the fragrance a few feet away. They volatilize and it drifts nearby. So the hybrid musks are known for that, not having fragrance in the petals, but having it in the, the anthers, which means it only comes out when the flower opens fully and at certain times of day. So that's part of it. The main way to get fragrant roses is to buy roses that are known to be fragrant, but also be aware that even those on a hot day that's very dry, for example, you may not get much scent out of them. And I run into this all the time when I'm selling roses and someone walks in on a sunny afternoon and it's, you know, a hot, a hot day in May. You said this one was fragrant. I barely get anything. I say, well, try it again in the early evening. You know, they, the <laughs> fragrance will differ by the time of day. So I can assume that when I read a catalog about roses written by someone in England, you know, where it's never 100 <laughs> degrees and it's never 5% humidity. It's always that kind of right combination of temperature and humidity. That same rose will probably be more fragrant different times of day than it would be here in the drier, arid Western United States. But there are some that there's no question. So, you know, if, if fragrance is your key thing, just ask. I can tell you which roses are going to be super fragrant. 
happens. His other question really was like, is there a fertilizer I should put on them that'll make a rose more fragrant? Is there something I can do to them to make them more fragrant? Pruning, all those other things you're told about. No, none of those make any difference. The fragrance of a rose is intrinsic to the breed. Uh, there are some where you're going to walk up and you'll be blown away by the fragrance. And there are others where it's more delicate and it occurs mostly at certain times of day. One of the reasons a lot of us really got into older roses, when we first got into roses in the first place and then discovered the 19th century hybrid perpetuals and bourbon roses and all those big sprawling plants that will have three or four hundred blooms at once of these heavily doubled flowers, they tend to be very fragrant. Partly that's because these are what remain of the hundreds, if not thousands, of hybrid perpetual rose varieties that existed in the 19th century. These are the ones that are still with us. The ones that are still with us are probably the ones that are bigger flowered and more fragrant just by the process of selection of, of people. We have selected roses for a lot of characteristics. But if you're really into fragrant roses and you've got the room for it, look into some of the hybrid perpetuals and some of the bourbon roses from the 19th century, they take space. They're anywhere from 10 to 12 feet. Some of them can be grown as climbers. Some of them sprawl all over the place. Some of them only bloom once in the spring to early summer, and then they don't rebloom. So you need to learn about them, but they're worth it. Yeah, I'll mention one. For those of you who are artists, you probably know the color Neyron Pink, N-E-Y-R-O-N Pink. It's named for a rose called Paul Neyron, which is a hot pink color. It only blooms in the month of April. It gives you about five to 600 flowers at once. They're intensely fragrant and they dry into an amazing potpourri and the plant sprawls about eight feet across. So I'm not going to sell this rose unless someone asks me to propagate it for them. I've got one, but it only blooms once a year. So it wouldn't be a big seller. But if you hear this and you're all excited about the idea of having a Paul Neyron rose, Send me a note. I'll take a cutting. We'll have a rose for you sometime in the spring or summer. But you got to give it room. And I, when my daughter got married, I picked probably 300 tight buds off of this plant. And we put them in bowls on the tables where her wedding was happening. And they were just opening. And people were taking the bowls and putting their faces into it, smelling the fragrance. And it was, it was packed packed with fragrance. So that's an example of an old garden rose worth growing for the fragrance. But again, it has the drawback of being a big plant and not blooming consistently through the summer. It's a once a year bloom. I got to tell you, listeners, that sometimes when I read these questions, I don't know what it's about until about <laughs> halfway through the question. And then I'll go, oh, that's what they're talking about. This one that's one of those questions. Yep. So Matt, who lives in Winters, writes to us, is the beta testing of the Palo Verde Desert Museum complete? Okay, I'll stop. Listening... I'll, I'll stop right there. That's the, 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 he's referring to Tree Davis and uh, researchers in the area, Greg McPherson, who's president of Tree Davis and others, testing Palo Verde Desert Museum cultivar, which is a thornless Palo Verde, big step forward. Is that, use, is that a tree or a bush yes, or a yes, flower? Palo Verde is a large, very bushy tree. It's a, it's a tree okay. that's got beautiful flowers, extremely drought tolerant. It has become very popular in Southern California and the Southwest. Uh, the thornlessness made it very popular because Palo Verdes were very spiny. And um, all right, go ahead. We'll, we'll go on from there. I was listening back to an earlier show, and you discussed this as an, a potential option for a patio tree. Yeah. I live in winters and have noticed they look great outside the PG&E facility off County Road 128. However, I did observe one in town that looked spectacular in full bloom until it rained, yeah. and the weight of the water on the blooms completely tore the tree apart. 
I'm not sure if the tree was improperly pruned or if that is just an unavoidable aspect of this species. For, from what I remember, this tree was less than two years old and it was at least seven to eight feet tall. Is yeah. brittle wood a common characteristic of fast growing trees? Yes, to answer Let's take that, that question. Last question that, yes, indeed. Brittle wood is a common characteristic of fast growing trees. I can think of acacias, for example, eucalyptus, uh, which are all very fast growers. Palo Verde uh, was one that we thought had great potential. We're looking at, uh, I'm putting on my Tree Davis hat for a moment. We're trying to get greater diversity in the street tree program in Davis and elsewhere. We're trying to set a model for other places to look at. So we're testing things from the American Southwest as well as other regions that are very hot very dry. We're, the, we're looking at trees for the future. You know, a tree that we're planting now that'll still be around 50 years, 60 years from now when it is expected, of course. The, the incidence of high temperature, extreme heat waves such as we had in September this year will be more frequent, that night temperatures will be more, will be higher and so forth. And also, you know, drought incidences. So we want to have trees that can go essentially without irrigation. So Palo Verde was one of them and Desert Museum was one. Also Desert Willow, the Chilopsis linearis, which is native to the southwestern United United States, a beautiful tree. We have found when we plant some of these southwestern trees in our area, we have soils that retain nutrients and retain water better than where they come from. Mm. So they grow really well. People who have planted desert willows, I had this experience. I planted one ooh, 30 plus years ago in an area that I irrigated and it was, you know, I'm on a farm with really nice, rich, silty loam and there's nitrates in my water and there's fertilizer in the soil there. It grew like crazy. It grew five feet a year. I was really happy for 10 to 15 years until it fell apart. And that's what has happened with Palo Verde when we tested it in parks and places like that, parks and green belts and places where we were, we were trying to see if this could be a good city street tree or park tree. It grew so fast and so bushy that we concluded it would be very high maintenance. There are trees mm -hmm. sort of like that that we already deal with in California. The uh, Chinese elm, the Drake elm is a good example, grows very fast. And if it isn't properly trained, Southern Californians know this, and you get a Santa Ana wind, branches will split out. Palo Verde was doing the same thing. It grew very fast. The early results were very promising. Pictures of it look great. The bloom is spectacular. And then they would start to fall apart. So you would want to plant them where the irrigation is. You're going to back off on that pretty quickly once it's established. You'd want to certainly make sure no one's fertilizing them or doing anything like that. Very careful training of the young tree and ongoing, probably a visit by a tree crew every two to three years, which as far as we were concerned, ruled it out for the purposes that it was being considered for. That is to say, mm -hmm. city street tree, park tree, things like that. For a backyard tree, as long as you're aware of all the things I just talked about, uh, back off on the watering, grow it a little, don't feed it, back off on the watering, grow it a little um, uh, more, more stressed, I guess I would say, actually go to as, as little irrigation as possible, as quickly as possible, and carefully train them for good structure. It can be a great backyard tree and the bloom is spectacular. And they are, of course, extremely drought tolerant. Once established, they don't need any supplemental irrigation at all. You've been listening to the Davis Garden Show with Don Shore. And Lois Richter here at KDRT LP 95.7 in Davis, California.